John Motini Podcast, episode H7, The History of Garfunkel Eggs. Now, if your family is anything like my family, and statistics show that it is, your kitchen is full of Art Garfunkel brand eggs. All sorts of Art Garfunkel eggs. My uh, kids sometimes call them eggs, but they often call them Garfunkels, like, uh, oh, can we can we have Garfunkels for, for dinner? Or they'll call them uh, Garfs or Funkles or Art Garfs, uh, really anything. They kind of have fun with it um, because Art Garfunkel eggs have been a part of our family for a long time. I mean, part of my children's childhood, part of my childhood, and um, probably the childhoods of child's yet to come. But it wasn't always that way. Um, and to really trace the history of this brand that has become the dominant food producer in the country, we need to trace the history of Art Garfunkel. Now, Art Garfunkel, founder of Garfunkel Eggs, was born in 1941 in New York City. And um, you know that's where he met Paul Simon. We're going to get to that in a little bit, but he uh, he was born the father of Frank Garfunkel, and Frank Garfunkel was the really the head honcho in New York City for all things having to do with chalkboard erasers. Now, chalkboard erasers at the time were a really big deal because think about it: every classroom needed to have a chalkboard. Every chalkboard had several chalkboard erasers because you had to erase the things and then add that to like people hucking them around or people using them as hockey pucks uh, for games at recess. People went through a lot of chalkboard erasers. And if you wanted a chalkboard eraser in New York City, you had to go through Frank Garfunkel. The warehouse where all these chalkboard erasers were kept, doubled as the Garfunkel home. They had a little apartment uh, in one part of it, so it was a little more furnished, but they lived at the chalkboard eraser warehouse. It was out in Brooklyn. And that's where Art Garfunkel grew up, because his father had to put in that much work. It's a lot of work, chalkboard erasers. Now, young Art Garfunkel was used to being around these uh, chalkboard erasers, and he he became fond of singing in the warehouse because he could go from place to place in this warehouse and sing and get different effects because the acoustics would be totally different. He could sing loudly out in a more open space in the warehouse, or he could build himself a little uh, walled-off fort of erasers and sing there with a more deadened quality to make it kind of more of a a soft, whispery kind of song, and he was good. He he noticed that he could sing. He he knew that he could carry a tune. He knew that he could hit some some pretty high notes, and he he was really thankful for that. He loved the chalkboard erasers, but he began to imagine maybe there's something maybe there's something more to this. And when he was in first grade, the teacher his teacher had the students sing as a choir, and Art Garfunkel really fell in love with the, the sound of 
the notes that these kids were singing, boys and girls, these these notes that were bouncing off the walls, and he would listen to them sing from the stairwell by the by the classroom, and he would he really really became fond of it, and and became fascinated with kind of what this wide variety of voices could do, because there was. You know, there were there were boys and girls in the class, and they had all sorts of different voices, all kinds of things. Some could sing really well. Some of them could sing not so well, but they did it with energy. Some sang high and low. And he thought, this is really amazing when, when all these voices kind of come together. And he would often tell his, his parents about it um, in the morning over eggs. He had eggs. He had chicken eggs, I should specify every day for breakfast, and he would eat them in the the traditional way of having cracked them and discarding the shell, just throwing the shell in the garbage. Uh, Then there'd be some heat in some way, fried, boiled. Um, Every day he has eggs for breakfast, and that's obviously important to note, but it's still still only a small part of, of his life. Now, Later on in elementary school, he ends up going to school with a kid named Paul Simon. Simon and Garfunkel, this is where this is where it happened. If you've ever heard of the musical duo Simon and Garfunkel, it's the same Art Garfunkel from Garfunkel Eggs. A lot of people don't know that. But they they hit it off. They kind of heard each other sing and they looked at the difference in their in their voices and their heights and their hairstyles, and they said, we got, we got some contrast going here. They both loved music, and, and they would go out at recess, and they would, uh, I mean, Art Garfunkel would often play chalkboard eraser hockey just to try to use up more chalkboard erasers because it's good for business, and he cared a lot about his father's business. And he and Simon would go out on the, the playground, and they would sing. They would sing all sorts of songs, whatever songs they could think of. And what happened was Art Garfunkel's singing voice was so high and reedy. I can't really simulate it here, but he would just sing these high notes, and they started to notice birds. They started to notice all these birds coming along whenever they went out to sing. And Art already had this sort of tall, frizzy hairdo, and birds would think, oh, that's a great place to nest. Birds would frequently land in Art Garfunkel's hair as he sang. Pigeons, robins, swallows, sparrows, the occasional seagull, they would all come around when Simon and Garfunkel, as fifth graders, were there singing on the playground. And you know he would he would remove them gently or he'd get paul to to help him and he kind of lower his head down and young paul simon would gently extract the birds which was sometimes complicated because of the tangles in garf's hair and then he noticed that at the end of the day there were the birds waiting for him they wanted more music and simon and garfunkel young simon and garfunkel tested this out Simon would go to one side of the playground uh, after school and, and Garf would go to the other. And they would both sing. All the birds went straight for art. 
a.k.a. Garf. A lot of people call him Garf now. And so that was just the way it was. He loved to sing. He loved to hear the variety of sounds, and, and he attracted birds, lots of birds. It was hard for, for Art to make human friends. Not everybody understood his way of thinking. He was kind of a kind of a loner. He thought differently. He liked to sing. He was fond of acoustics. He, was, he attracted birds. And so eventually, when the birds made this a regular thing and started hanging around for him after school, he would just walk home and they would follow him. And they would follow him to this big chalkboard eraser warehouse where he would sing to them. He would. He started to wear a hat at that point because the the birds were so desperate to to nest in his hair. And even after he put on a baseball cap, they still kind of came around. He actually had to put, uh, he had to wear a spiky hat um, really to kind of repel birds, kind of like, you know, metal spikes all over it until they would finally get the hint. But it soothed him. Singing to the birds in a variety of places in the chalkboard warehouse was was something he really enjoyed. He would then say, okay, it's, it's time for you to go home. Most of the birds had nests either near the school or near the chalkboard warehouse one way or another. And, um, you know, because he was just part of their lifestyle. And his singing improved as a result. The more you sing, the more birds you attract, the more you learn about acoustics, the better you get at it. And he was interested in chalkboard erasers. Who wouldn't be? But he knew that for the moment, his future was in singing. So Simon and Garfunkel stay friends. They keep making music. They develop more of a bird management plan. Uh, it's kind of it's kind of like a Grizzly Adams thing with the bears, except with birds and and in New York. And ultimately, they form a duo called Tom and Jerry. This is uh, a lot of people don't know about this. This is an act. Look it up. Tom and Jerry was the original iteration of Simon and Garfunkel. They even had a couple minor hits as sort of boy singers, boy musicians. Um, the problem was that they had a very narrow range of songs. All their songs were based on Tom and Jerry, the cartoon. They were, in fact, sponsored by the company that made the Tom and Jerry cartoon. And their songs were about a cat desperately wanting to murder a mouse. They had songs like Mouse Murder, I'm Going to Get You This Time, I'm using TNT. I can't wait to hear your bones collapse. I mean, it's a catchy song. I can't wait to hear your bones collapse. If you've ever heard, I can't wait bones collapse. It's the the harmonies are tight. It's fun, but you can't get away from from what's kind of a bleak message. And ultimately, uh, the. The public loses interest in all these songs about a cat wanting to to murder a mouse. But Tom and Jerry, as a duo, makes money. They make money, and with this money, Garf starts to acquire some more exotic birds. It's nothing against the pigeons or the, the crows that are common around New York, but he wants to see what else there is. So he starts acquiring cockatiels and parrots and he special orders a a semi-legal toucan 
and and that comes and lives with him uh, close by close by the bed that he has fashioned out of chalkboard erasers. Now, Garf spends the next several years building really a state of the art recording studio entirely out of discarded erasers, kind of factory seconds, ones that his father doesn't need anymore. And he birdproofs the studio so he can have some recordings of just of just human voices, his own voice singing, because he still does enjoy singing. And he has to build that chalkboard eraser studio fort thick enough so that the birds can't peck their way through because they are still so attracted to his voice. It's a blessing and a curse. He builds another bird-friendly studio so that he could record songs with the birds. They're not very good. They're mostly like 12-bar blues classics with this cacophony of screeching and chirping and, and yowling. It's really a mess. It's fascinating, but it's, uh, it's really not top 40 material. Nothing he really does is. I mean, he's, he's, he's living off this money that he has from, uh, from being kind of a, a scion of the chalkboard eraser uh, fortune, but also from the money that he made from, from his grim and grisly Tom and Jerry cartoons. And he's acquiring yet more birds, ostriches, emus, small birds. He brings in crows. He brings in ravens, Dutch yelping birds, hollow birds, finches, ditch weepers, all kinds of birds are coming to live. Uh, and at this point, he's moved, the, moved most of them inside into the, into the warehouse. And the, the guys who work in the warehouse, they don't really mind. They know, they know what's going on and, and they aren't crazy about it, but they, they learn to live with it. Now, there's a, a common legend out there about when Simon and Garfunkel went from being just a couple guys to uh, being Tom and Jerry on those on those uh, recordings to being the Simon and Garfunkel that were famous for a few years this this singing duo that was much beloved and the the legend is always that they ran into each other on the Brooklyn Bridge walking across the Brooklyn Bridge and that's how they decided to get back together that legend is only partially correct. It's semi-apocryphal because Simon was, in fact, walking across the Brooklyn Bridge. Art Garfunkel was below the Brooklyn Bridge, and he was down there testing out some new recording techniques. There are some birds down there that he was really interested in scouting. He believed still that, that a bird recording, that bird music kind of infused with a folk sensibility and a rock and roll spirit could be commercially successful. And he was down there trying to record some birds, trying to talk them into to coming out to Brooklyn to live at the factory. Um, it, wasn't really, it wasn't really working, but Paul heard this, heard this sound, heard that high, reedy voice, and he heard the, the flutter of wings, and he said, okay, I know that guy. I want to I want to see what he's up to. And Simon had been recording on his own. He'd been making solo records and he had been uh, cutting his hair very very short and he had been he had gone through several partners um trying to find the right one, trying to find the right sound. 
He worked with Bark Mark Bunkle. So it was Simon and Mark Bunkle. He had a partner called Larf, a partner called Larf Farpstunkle, and of course Smarp Blogbunkle. None of them really delivered the sound that they were that they were looking for. So Simon and Garfunkel meet up and they get to talking and Art, you know, his money's running a little short. The commercial enterprise of trying to, you know, to go to the record labels and sell these these bird rock songs, that's going nowhere. And his his fortune is withering. And the 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 chalkboard eraser business is is still going fine. But his father is saying, you know, you need to make a big move here, or you need to really help out around the warehouse instead of simply communing with birds and singing in forts that you have made. So Simon and Garfunkel, they get back together and they have some success. They release a song called The Sound of Silence, which is not just a recording of silence, although that would be pretty cool. No, it's, it's a song all about the sound of what silence sounds like. And it was originally called The Shoes That Are Socks. It's really a, an exercise in meaninglessness. And The Sound of Silence has some commercial success. Money is starting to come in, and they're starting to be much in demand as a musical duo. They go out on tour with Aerosmith. They are traveling around. They are recording. It's taking up a, a lot of time. He's helping out with, with the birds and the erasers as best he can when he, whenever he's back home. Uh, they re, Simon and Garfunkel release more music, and it's also successful. They record Scarborough Fair, which is all about hassling someone to run errands for you when you don't feel like going to a fair. But they move in different directions, ultimately. They, they get their money. They, they have tremendous success. They're, they're incredibly popular. They are, um, Paul Simon is, is, becomes the king of Belgium. They, the world is such fans of their music that they, that the country of Belgium, which had been without a king says, let's just have Paul Simon be the king. He'll come around, he'll make music, he'll make Belgian music. And the people in Belgium said, well, what's Belgian music? And then the, the people at the palace said, well, exactly. We don't know. Let's get Paul Simon to be our king. And maybe the Netherlands can have art as their king. And wouldn't that be cool? And the Netherlands said, no, he kind of, if he played a guitar, maybe, but we don't want, we don't want Art Garfunkel with his high frizzy hair or his hat with spikes on it. We don't want him hanging around our palace, just singing acapella. That's, that's creepy. We don't want that. And so they're moving in different directions. Paul was all about the music and the occasional trip to Belgium. Uh, Art wasn't into music so much. He wanted to act in things. He wanted to, uh, he was working with a conditioner company on technology for frizzy hair to try to calm it down. He put out some solo albums, but that was just one small part. And so ultimately they, they broke up. They, they had to be considered broken up. They would get back together, as we're going to find out here in a second, from time to time over the years for a concert in Central Park 
and a concert um, about Jurassic Park. That was a brief revival that they had. Um, there is no actual Jurassic. There is no place <laughs> that has live dinosaurs. This was a, a promotional series that McDonald's ran uh, to celebrate the movie Jurassic Park, and it involved an album of original Simon and Garfunkel songs and a year-long tour. So just to be clear, to be clear about that, dinosaurs aren't real and never were. But Art also has a lot of downtime. He uh, is spending a lot of time at this point at the warehouse. Um, right around the mid-1970s, his parents died and were given what's called a bird funeral. I'm not really going to get into the details of that. And finally, Art had the warehouse to himself. And he begins reading books like crazy. He's just sitting around reading. He's got all the money he needs, of course, from from both the the chalkboard eraser distributorship and then all the royalties. He never really needs to work again. So he's reading books like crazy. And he starts reading some out loud to what is now a vast menagerie of birds that have long since scared off most of the, the warehouse workers there at the, the chalkboard eraser warehouse. Some of them have stuck around using uh, thick bird-proof suits, but you know, for the most part, they have the run of the place, art and the birds. And the birds all have different tastes, Art realizes. The pigeons like trashy romance. The kiwis like historical fiction. The herons are into how-to manuals. And Art thinks about this, and he says, this is just like school. This is just like all the different sounds that I used to hear when all the different kids were, were singing. This is... This is magical. And he thinks, well, maybe maybe variety, maybe there's really something to them. Now, there had been chickens, of course, living in, in the warehouse for some time because chickens are, are fairly ubiquitous. And Art realized, I've been, all I've been doing is eating chicken eggs. I mean, it's like listening, it's like having a huge album collection with only one singer in it. And he's like, you know, these chicken eggs are, are great, but maybe there's something else that can, that can be happening here. And so having earned the bird's trust, he, and taking several shifts, uh, gently sitting on eggs, because really sitting on an egg for incubation, you can put an egg in an incubator. It's fine. It'll do the job, but there's something, there's something much better and warmer and more humane and more interesting about an egg that has been under Art Garfunkel's ass. So he gets to know the birds and he gets to figure out which eggs are, are fertilized and which aren't, which are presumably ready to eat and which aren't. And so again, as Paul Simon is recording all this music and, and really has dedicated himself to, at that point, to, to music and to the governance of Belgium, Art is experimenting with different recipes, different kinds of birds. To, you know, what can you do with crow eggs? What can you do with pigeon eggs? What can you do with the eggs of the Korean sifter? What can you do with bluebird eggs? What can you do with the orange menace? You know, the orange menace is lays very long, 
large eggs. There's got to be something you could do with it. And he starts to put these out there. Like at first at little food co-ops around Brooklyn, Art Garfunkel's egg assortments. And people are trying these different things. People are trying different recipes. And then, and so it's, it's starting to kind of build. Like all these chicken egg distributorships are, are kind of realizing that they've been playing this whole thing way too narrow. And eventually Art has a, a network TV show where you know, and he didn't even want to do it. He d- doesn't even really prepare for it. This is this is Art's Eggs that ran for like twelve years on ABC, and it's just it's just a one camera shot of Art in his chalkboard eraser warehouse talking about different things you could do with the eggs. And at one point, he says, "Well, and and with some of these eggs, just just eat the shell." People realize that not only have they been approaching this too narrowly for a long time by eating only what's inside the egg uh, and only a, a chicken egg, you know, they, where they could be eating all sorts of birds and eating the shells. If you prepare the shells right, you know, a lot of people think they're the best part of the egg. Now, okay, fast forward another 10 years and the market is flooded with all kinds of eggs. And There are a few sort of indie chicken-only egg distributors, kind of artisanal eggs. But for the most part, the whole market belongs to Art Garfunkel. Now, other people have tried to challenge Art Garfunkel's egg superiority. There were James Taylor eggs. ZZ Top put out a line of eggs for a while. But nothing really compares to the, the Garfunkel eggs. And with the money he raised... By the sale of all these eggs, soon Art Garfunkel had more money than he knew what to do with. He said, I'm going to do something else here. He was able to hire Paul Simon to record a series of songs about how great eggs are. And they are great. That's why, that's why you know, nearly half of what everybody eats is an Art Garfunkel brand egg. They're, they're not involved with, with funding this show, mind you. This, there is editorial independence. I just... You know, I happen to live in the real world where our Garfunkel eggs are are that ubiquitous. So he hires Paul Simon to do bird songs. But at the signing of that contract, our Garfunkel brought in enough birds into the room to so distract Paul Simon that he signs off on a provision that he only records songs about birds from that day forward. Now, was that snipery, you know, was that Art trying to get at Paul? They famously had all sorts of feuds over the years. Was this an example of that? I don't know. But the provision required that henceforth all recorded Paul Simon material is about birds. So that's why you have songs, fairly successful songs from Paul, like Here Now the Emu, My Girlfriend is a Cormorant, Road Trip with an Ostrich. And if you if you think about the titles there, they all mention birds. So what will Paul do next? I mean, it's hard to say. He, he pensioned out all the chalkboard eraser warehouse workers from the facility where Art still lives. I mean, you can't, 
you can't get too close to it now because of security, unless you're a bird. But he's still there. That's where he spends the majority of his time. And it's rather peaceful, of course, because everybody has gone to like computer projections or whiteboards. So it's it's like running a barber pole factory. You you don't you're not that busy with that core business. But he loves it and the birds love it. And as long as they keep pounding out those eggs that all the rest of us can't stop eating despite the cholesterol, maybe because of the cholesterol, then I think it all just works out. But, you know, if you're inclined sometime to go to a record store and dig past all of Paul Simon's uh, albums about birds and dig past the numerous, um, sometimes entire sections of bird-based popular music uh, featuring birds that, that Garf has put out and find some of those early Simon and Garfunkel records, and they're not even really about birds, mostly, then um, it could be kind of nice. It could be nice listening while you do something like eat eggs. John Moe Teeny Podcast, episode H7.